0: Hello and welcome, or welcome back, to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson and every Thursday this summer I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. In this episode we're talking about one of the less obvious threats posed by the Covid pandemic, this time not from the virus itself. This threat came from our human responses to it and since we aren't just animals but highly social animals, We're going to be talking about how our culture and our political institutions struggle to make sense of Covid and balance democracy, privacy and individual dignity with protecting everyone's physical health. And if you're feeling a bit glum about public debate and politics right now and who can blame you, then stay tuned. This is an example of Parliament working for the better and of how crucial robust knowledge is to making good decisions in the public interest. I've got a personal interest in this as my own PhD was in politics and specifically looked at how appeals to our emotional and more technical selves shape the decisions we make as a society. In social research, moments of great change are moments of great potential, for good or ill. Think of it as standing on an underground station platform, watching trains go by for ages and then one of them slows to a halt, its doors perfectly aligned with where you happen to be standing. They open and lots of possible futures step out, and you have to pick one quickly and shake it by the hand. While we were living through it, it was actually quite hard to think of the start of the Covid pandemic as more than just a threat to our physical well-being. We were all quite rightly focused on surviving and staying well. But Dr Michael Veal in UCL's Faculty of Laws and his colleagues in universities across Europe could also see how the need to track how the virus was being passed from person to person had opened one of those dangerous doors. They could see how the government's interest in monitoring COVID spreading and technology companies' interest in making bigger profits could forever damage our individual right to privacy. That said, I put it to Michael that a law lecturer is maybe not the first expert people would expect to be on that team.
1: Yeah, an interesting question. So my research is around um, a mix of, of computer science, law and policy so a lot of it's around privacy enhancing technologies, privacy platforms and power, um, what smartphones do, don't do, should do, shouldn't do, for example, and how that intersects in the space between law, policy and technology. And I've been working for um, quite a while with different collaborators on privacy enhancing technologies, which are really um, just smart ways in a way to have your cake and eat it, to ensure that that data isn't unnecessarily shared or analysed beyond what you need to uh, analyse it for, um, yet you can still make interesting uses of it. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was this really big fever for um, technological solutions because we live in the 21st century and people are attracted to technical solutions, particularly for intractable social and technical problems. And in the in that context, um, we saw different governments sort of looking uh, eyeing up uh, different solutions. They were often doing it behind the scenes, so it wasn't always so visible to the public at that time in sort of March 2020. We were getting a bit concerned because these technologies didn't really exist. Um, and if they were going to make them in a really hasty way, they were going to have a really big impact upon upon uh, privacy and power and do a lot more in the world than just contact tracing and pandemic support. They could really um they could really do some harm. Um, And so really through a series of of, uh, messaging groups and so on, just on people's phones, we were all at home, uh, myself and colleagues banded together um, in very informal ways, just picking up a few people along the way to make a team that could develop a technology very, very fast that if it failed, wouldn't leave a kind of harmful residue behind. So this is an uncertain technology, we thought, Let's make something that can use smartphones for contact tracing. Um, But if this unproven technology doesn't function very well, and doesn't actually help the pandemic very well, then we're not going to leave behind uh, a network of who saw who and who knows who in every single country that can be abused, particularly by regimes with poor human rights records. And so that's how it came about. I was working with a mix of existing and new collaborators which is important if you're going to deliver something at speed. You have to really know the people you're working with. um, That's quite important. Um, And and it sort of went from there. We developed this very, very rapidly as an idea and and deployed it uh, in a white paper and then in in code. And um, yeah, we'll talk about what happened after that.
0: As researchers, we are always thinking about how to balance our public mission to understand and explore with our participants' right to privacy and dignity. But taking that debate to the court of public opinion, right at a moment of crisis and danger, requires some bravery and great rigour, plus a willingness to work politically and academically at the same time. Because, of course, it wasn't just Michael and the DP3T universities vying for policymakers' attention. Private software developers were already lobbying hard for their technology to be adopted by governments around the world. And as Natasha Lomas, a senior reporter with tech business website TechCrunch, explained to me, their interest in personal privacy is secondary to their mission to make money. Governments seem to be very quick to sort of eye up the, the technology companies as the great saviours and potentially the way to fix it, and they perhaps weren't necessarily front of mind on the privacy side. So it, 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 also that can also be true from the technology company side. They're very keen to kind of show off what they, they, they say they can do with these you know, powerful technologies that they have. Um so I, I don't think it was necessarily that clear cut, really, especially that early on, because as I remember this this sort of sequence unfolding. It, everything seemed to happen very quickly. While it's not so surprising that private software and mobile tech companies would be offering COVID tracing products to customers, which also handily harvest lots of valuable personal data, it's maybe less obvious why governments would be attracted to that. Their reasons are a bit more nuanced and shine a light on the prevailing culture of governance and policy innovation in political life. According to Lord Tim Clement Jones, a Lib Dem peer in the House of Lords, there was an implicit faith in big data as a technical solution to the profoundly social problem of disease transmission.
2: They would have had no choice but to um, send their personal NHS, um, uh, all their you know any details accumulated um, to a central point, and then you know uh, uh, this would have um, meant that. Um, They were on a single central database, which would have then been populated by um, uh, the NHS, you know, for their own purposes. I mean, you know, I'm a great believer in using um, health data, but you've got to use it in a way that people have consented to and understand, you know, whereas this would have been completely it would have been just automatic.
0: If all of this talk of privacy and individual rights and governments harnessing health data from centralised apps to control people's behaviour sounds a bit abstract and paranoid, if it all seems a bit decadent when faced with a deadly infectious disease, then frankly that's probably a sign you've had the privilege of not worrying about this before. And that privilege can be taken away. Anyone who's been trying to permanently delete their centralised menstruation tracking data in the wake of Roe versus Wade being overturned in the States will tell you. These abstract things can become very real once it's your body, your behaviour being policed. Fortunately, there were plenty of people in Parliament who shared those concerns with Michael and his colleagues, and Lord Clement-Jones was one of them. In the early days of the pandemic, he and his fellow peers were watching NHSX, the UK's National Centre for Digital and Data Innovation in Health at the time, and the government's attempt to develop a tracing app with growing concern.
2: I'm uh, not part of the health team uh, in the Lords but I am our digital spokesperson and um, so Michael contacted me about um, a, a bill that he wanted to uh, uh, promote um, uh, which is about safeguarding uh, data and rights under uh, from um, uh, yeah, it sort of undue action by government, um, as regards the uh, the new um, announced uh, COVID app, uh, the tracker app, and uh, so it was really rather important that um, uh, you know um, he, he clearly thought it's important that government um, uh, uh, should be you know conforming to this. And I said, well, why why is that? Um, And so then he got into, uh, you know, uh, briefing me really um, entirely uh, about uh, what I had no idea about, which was the difference between a centralized and a decentralized tracker app um, and the work that he had been doing with Continental colleagues on uh, what was called DP3T. Um, And uh, uh, so I then uh, agreed to ask a parliamentary oral question And in the meantime, because written questions come, answers to written questions come back rather quicker, I also asked quite a range of written questions about the whole thing. Um, And uh, then really that led to uh, government um, being extremely defensive. But I think they felt that um, there was, um, uh, uh, you know, there was quite a lot of pressure on them. Um, I mean, I got the answers back to my uh, written questions. Sometime around the 20th of May. Um, so a bit of time was taken. Um, and we had the uh, the oral question uh, through, I think, sort of early ish in. Uh, yes, we had the contact tracing app question on the 6th of May. So I think what must have happened was that um, our oral, uh, our written questions were follow up um, questions um, to the oral question, because we didn't think we'd had a particularly good answer. Uh, I mean, Bethel said in reply, in response to my question about um, what action they are taking to protect the privacy of users and pro- provide oversight of the NHS COVID nineteen uh, contact tracing app, um, and whether it met the uh, whether the application met Apple's privacy standards for Bluetooth, um, because I knew the answer to that, which was that it didn't. Um, and that they would ultimately um, fail uh, with a centralized app if they uh, uh, continued down that road. But of course, the way the government um, uh, answered the question, I mean, was to totally obfuscate the issue um, and say that they would been in contact with the information commissioner's office. They're holding discussions with Apple and Google, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but actually, I mean, he. It, this, this this was pretty misleading because he said the app uses, this is Lord Bethel, the app uses only software development tools and mechanisms that are supported by Apple and Google. Well of course uh, at that time we knew that wasn't the case.
0: And how important was the research that Michael and his colleagues had been doing? I know they'd been working really intensively and rapidly on developing uh, these protocols and and building this case but from a from a political point of view, how important is that? was that research to building the political case?
2: For oh, oh, absolutely vital, because, um, you know, um, having a, an alternative is the crucial thing. I mean, A, it made us understand that it was possible to have a decentralised app. And B, um, uh, uh, it demonstrated that, you know, that, oh, and, and of course, secondly, it demonstrated that Apple and Google were not going to go down the centralised route. Um, because it was clear that that, that that was, you know, the case from the protocols. The expert opinion from people like Michael was that it wouldn't meet the protocols and it t- turned out to be entirely correct. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, that having the alternative um, uh, and having, if you like, the, um, I suppose, the the sort of points in the bill to make um, that we needed to make sure that citizens were not Uh, were in a sense protected from the misuse of this app, um, I I think was really important. And, you know, the government may not have have listened at the time, but I think they came to realise that this was the only game in town, uh, quite honestly, Um, and it enabled uh, the opposition, myself, Lord Scriven and a number of others um, to raise the issue. If if Michael hadn't raised it, we wouldn't have had a clue. Uh, about uh, DP3T, we wouldn't have had a clue about the incompatibility with Google and Apple. We wouldn't have had any understanding of the the sort of real flaws in the centralized system um, and the very uh, practical um, application of the of um, the app that Michael had already developed. I mean, you know, that was the thing.
0: As Lord Clement-Jones says there, it's not unusual for academics to raise concern about government policy. It often isn't enough, though. Government is about finding solutions, and it's always hungry for them and needs them yesterday. So what was that alternative that Michael and his colleagues were building in parallel with NHSX's ill-fated app? Michael spoke with Vivian Parry for an episode of UCL's Coronavirus The Whole Story about the process of designing the DP3T protocol, and about finding a solution that only stored contact information locally on the users' phones.
1: Could we build a kind of system that would would help contact tracers, but which would would put privacy and human rights first? Um, and and we did this quite early on with with researchers. We effectively built um, something that that public health authorities could use in apps for for Bluetooth connections between phones to see if a phone had been near each other, but it would have the quality that no data would about you would be leaving your phone. Um, so it could be done without creating a large central database of who saw who. Um, the, the worry with that central database, I think was exacerbated during COVID because uh, because of the great uncertainty, nobody really knew if technical interventions will work or, or many of the qualities of this disease. Uh, and, and you could anticipate that if uh, governments uh, had access to a really large, uh, what's called social graphs, net, yeah, networks of who saw who in society. That could, in many, in, in the wrong hands, become quite a coercive tool to allow uh, a government to send certain people home or or allow certain people out of their houses uh, in a very orchestrated way that that could really have um, effects on on uh, on on many groups, uh, persecution and, and the like. Uh, so we were very concerned about that. It was uh, very specifically aimed at times when individuals may have, have spent time with somebody they don't remember, or they might not know the name of, um, and and it was designed to do so to alert these people uh, rapidly. So we were still, at that time, we still are, uh, learning about the exact dynamics of the disease, uh, how quickly it spreads, for how long it's contagious, how long it can be incubated, the effects of asymptomatic uh, individuals on, on the entire modelling of, of the system. So you know, going back to the question of can AI save us, one of the things that AI has done is it's really blinded a lot of people in computing to any alternative that isn't collecting a huge amount of data and putting it all in one place um, and seeing later on what you want to do with it. AI has not is not necessarily very good at, at predicting uh, dynamics we haven't seen before. It's, it's a pattern recognition system. It can't go beyond what it's seen in training data. Uh, and what we'd found really uh, as an alternative is to say... Um, Uh, do you need to collect all this data or can you focus on a particular purpose? If you need to make contact tracing happen effectively uh, and you want to do that technologically, you might not need to have data all centralized in one place. It can be kept on everybody's individual phones. There doesn't have to be a privacy or human rights trade-off. We don't have to set aside human rights for the risk of COVID. We can actually have both. But that requires us to think about the problem we're facing really carefully. Say, what are we trying to achieve with this technological intervention for contact tracing? Um, And and how would we get there in a proportionate way? And that's where where law, human rights, data protection law can really be a a pretty guiding force.
0: So to recap, DP3T, like other tracing protocols, uses Bluetooth to perform a handshake with other nearby mobile phones to track when we come into contact with COVID positive people. Unlike those competing protocols, the data about who we've been close to is never transferred to a third party, so it can never be tracked back to an individual. The DP3T universities had shown that it could be done, and that it could be done better than the alternatives. But as we'll hear from Lord Clement Jones in a moment, there were two other big elements that allowed him to use the DP3T consortium of universities' work to get a decentralised tracking app on Parliament's agenda. The first was that it was done with a commitment to transparency that no one else was showing at the time. Whether for commercial or other reasons, The precise nature of the protocols and the data processing used in other contact tracing apps was not available for discussion and public scrutiny. By contrast, the emerging DP3T protocol and all its code was up on GitHub for discussion and revision in real time and in the light of day. This completely changed the policy landscape in those early weeks as everyone scrambled for a contract tracing solution. The world could see that DP3T worked, and most importantly, how it worked. The other thing that Michael did pretty much immediately was draft a parliamentary bill and begin showing it to his contacts, and that is how he approached Tim Clement-Jones. And if that sounds like an unusual initial step in a research project, it is. But time was of the essence.
2: I thought it, I think it stimulated discussion. The trouble is with bills is it's incredibly difficult in the laws to get a slot. The only way to do it is a private member's bill. It's not like in the Commons where you have a 10-minute rule bill, for instance, um, uh, uh, process where you can just simply table something at pretty short notice. We can't do that. All we have is um, uh, House of Lords private members bills. So for my purposes, in terms of highlighting it, it was uh, helpful um, uh, to know exactly um, uh, you know, um, what Michael intended. Um, and I remember reading the bill with interest. Um, uh, but uh, 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 you know, is a question of really asking whether um, these safeguards were going to be enshrined in uh, regulations, basically. Um, and I think we did that with our ri- written questions subsequently, because, you know, for instance, uh, as Michael explained when he first wrote to me, um, you know, the whole idea of the bill was to make sure that no one is penalised for having a phone or another device, leaving house without the phone, failing to charge phone or whatever, no one's compelled to install a symptom and contact tracing app, etc., etc. et cetera. So, you know, it was trying to make sure that, that we weren't um, going to be living in a surveillance state, really. It was open source. It appeared on the uh, um, description, appeared on GitHub, I think, pretty early um, for the uh, DP3T uh, app, um, uh, in contrast to uh nhs x's work which you know although we asked um uh, many times uh when uh, they were going to put it up on uh, github um uh, i i think it only came out very late in the day if at all i mean the september uh, uh details came out on github but i'm i'm not sure that the uh, the centralized app uh, details uh, developed at, at first by nhs X ever came out. Actually, I think this is all about pennies dropping, basically. Of course, Michael um, has brilliant contacts in the scientific field and the tech field. I think the penny was dropping in the NHS X that this was not a goer um, uh, quite early in May. Uh, they wouldn't have started looking for somebody to develop a new app, actually, if this hadn't been possible. Um, and around June, uh, uh, late May, early June, they must have been finding somebody to do that. But, you know, uh, pennies have to drop in all directions. So I think the scientists and techs, tech guys um, were, the penny was dropping there, um, but it had to drop amongst the politicians. And I think, you know, if, if you're a sensible politician, you you may uh, stonewall when you answer. But unless you take, you know, take on board what people are saying, you're going to fall on your face if you're not careful, because there are people out there who know what they're talking about. And it may be that Lord Bethel, despite the fact that he denied it vehemently, uh, uh, actually was taking some notice.
0: While Michael and his colleagues' work was a truly global effort with global impacts, here in the UK, it demonstrably changed the way we learn to live with the virus. I began this episode by saying that times of great upheaval are windows that open briefly, where long-standing beliefs or habits can be changed and societies can rewrite their rules. I finished my conversation with Lord Clement-Jones by asking what the legacy of Parliament's fight for a decentralised COVID tracing app would be longer term.
2: During the health bill, we've had a whole debate with Lord Kamal, um, who is the new tech minister, taking over from Bethel. um, uh, Earlier um, uh, this year, or maybe even last year, Um, about the governance of NHS data, because, of course, what's happening is NHSX, which is meant to be the safe harbour for health data, um, is being amalgamated with NHS England. Well, we were pretty aggressive during the passage. This is Lord Philip Hunt and myself. We were fairly aggressive about this and said, look, You know, you've got to safeguard NHS data. It isn't good enough just to roll the safe harbour, which is meant to be a separate independent legal entity into NHS England, because NHS England can mark its own homework. And, uh, you know, we don't believe that is the way forward. Well, Lord Kamal um, was very cognizant of that for two reasons, I think. First of all, the COVID tracker fiasco and be the whole question of the GP opt out last year. I mean, you know, there are other reasons you could go back further and talk about care dot uh, data, which was another um, problem with GP data uh, a couple of years ago, um, you know, where lessons weren't really learned. But uh, I think the things that would stay in the civil servants minds and Lord Kamal's mind, um, uh, uh, and he was extremely good at engaging, I may say, um, were those two incidents and so i do believe that the covid tracker fiasco was really uh uh, uh you know something that um uh, persuaded um uh, the, the you know the people in the in in the department of health in particular um that they needed to do something about data governance where it was much much clearer i mean it's an absolute thicket of uh, permissions and bodies requiring to give permission and so on and it's very, very confusing for researchers. Um, it's very confusing um, uh, for uh, patients. It's very consuming for doctors um, as to know when they can release data. So, um, you know, I'm hoping and it's imminent. Lord Kamal gave evidence only on Wednesday to the Science and Technology Committee about this, um, that the new governance framework of proposals um, are coming out very shortly.
0: That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, when I'll be talking to Professor Kate Jones about how her research is helping to predict when diseases jump from animals to humans, and about how protecting the health of the planet is the key to protecting human health as well. If you can't wait until then and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I'd like to thank our guests, Dr Michael Veal, Natasha Lomas and Lord Tim Clement-Jones, and of course, you, our listeners.